I think it was like three months later, I got mail call. I was called down. I got my mail. I opened it up. It was from the governor's office. I opened it up and there's my clemency papers signed by the governor. I literally went from one second of being buried under the prison to now I have this paper in my hand that says I'm going to be free someday. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with author Jim Lynch, one of the Pacific Northwest's luminary novelists. Jim explained how he carefully observed setting through personal experience and also meticulous research to form the basis for each of his novels. Today we're going to explore the topic of rootedness in place from an entirely different standpoint. That is, we're going to explore what happens when circumstances prevent us from being anchored to place and to the people there. Our guest today grew up in the Pacific Northwest and has lived here for most of his life, but most of it, or at least half of it, was spent serving a life sentence without parole, most of it inside the walls of the Walla Walla State Penitentiary. And he got clemency through the governor of the state of Washington recently in 2017, at which point he encountered a different world outside of prison. So today we're going to explore what it means to be anchored to place and to people. We'll explore what it's like to live unhoused or homeless from someone who has experienced homelessness, but also a life of privilege. We're also gonna look at a life of crime, which at the time could seem like a solution to homelessness. And a warning to our listeners that we're also going to include some frank conversations about childhood sexual abuse, and some of our listeners may find that disturbing. And stick around at the end of today's conversation, we're gonna learn from our guests about the organization that he's building to help others become more anchored. Let's drive around. So welcome to our guest today, Michael Hoover. Hi, Michael. Hello. So you grew up in the Woodway community. Yep. And our podcast is about place. So I'd love for you to share about Woodway. It's always been kind of an interesting spot in the Northwest. So. Yeah. Woodway is a really beautiful area. Uh, as you know, it's a township within Edmonds. Lots of trees, lots of big houses, lots of, it's a fancy neighborhood for lack of a better word. It's a place of privilege for sure. Growing up there, I remember thinking that Woodway was the entire world, that everybody lived like we did. It's a small community, very close-knit, very safe neighborhood. It's very different from where I ended up. But I was born at Waldo Hospital in 1973. My mother was a heroin addict and addicted to methamphetamines. Um, Back then things were a little different than they are now. So if you're born with heroin in your system, they'll take you from the mother. My adoptive father is the one that delivered me. He had tried to get my mother to quit using opiates. About a week prior, I think is when she finally got off of them and maybe was using some kind of other medication to help her ease out of that opiate addiction. So I was born opiate affected, but not addicted, so to speak. Um, She took me home, and for the first six months of my life, she did not hold me, touch me, didn't feed me regularly. It got to the point where somebody had made a call to CPS, and so she became aware that her children, my sister and I, were going to be taken away from her, and she went to my father, my adoptive father, and asked if he would watch us for a while, in which he agreed to, and she was supposed to go to treatment but never did. And so after six months, my father petitioned the court for adoption, and he adopted my sister and I, and that's how we came to live in Woodway, Washington. And your father was her physician? Yeah. He is an osteopath. Wow. Okay. 
at some point you wound up in Tacoma at Home on the Hill. So just tell us a little bit. Yeah. If you could. Um, it's kind of a, a confusing story for me because I don't really, I don't really know how it all came came to be. But growing up in the household that I did, it was very restrictive, a lot of rules, very religious. Um, I didn't fit so well into that dynamic. I caused a lot of problems at home, um, being the only boy at the time in a household of eight sisters. And I didn't really fit into the mold of what my parents imagined their adopted son to be, right? So I caused a lot of trouble at home. I was in trouble all the time at school. I had learning disabilities, which were very frustrating for me because I couldn't um, learn at the same pace as the other kids. Homework was very difficult for me. So I was in counseling at a young age, and one of the counselors suggested that I would be put into a secure living facility to where I could learn how to manage my own life and learn life skills. Unfortunately, my parents didn't really investigate the home. They didn't really take a, a deep look at what was going on inside the home. So they placed me there. There was rampant sexual abuse going on. Um, this is a semi-secure facility. And it housed kids eight years old to 18 years old. And most of those kids were state care. Most of them came from Echo Glen, Maple Lane, Raymond Hall. And they would come to live there. And there was a lot of in and out. So I was placed kind of a guppy put in the shark tank. And that was home on the hill. Yeah. A very well-intentioned home for uh, wayward boys. But a lack of oversight and supervision um, created a an opportunity for pedophiles. Wow. And how old were you kind of when all this was happening? I was 11 years old. Okay. And then what happened next? So after Home on the Hill, I lived largely an unanchored life. I went from Home on the Hill. They closed it down. There was an investigation. So in my my estimation, my parents knew what had happened. So they brought me home. Um, and right away, they put me in another group home, Jesse Dyslin Ranch, which also had rampant sexual abuse going on at the home. Um, I assumed incorrectly, but I assumed that my parents knew what had happened to me and didn't want me in the household because I was damaged goods. And so I internalized that and was became very angry, um, very bitter towards my family. Probably every six months I would go from group home to group home to foster home. So I never really had a stable life, right? I was always in transition. I didn't get to have lifelong friends growing up in high school. Where were you in high school? I went to Woodway High School. Okay. I went to um, Berrien High School. Mm -hmm. I went to a uh, school in Tacoma. I went to school in Renton. You're kind of all over. Wow. And I would have short spats coming back home to Woodway, but they would never be longer than six months. And then there was addiction kind of along the way? Yeah, the addiction started when I was put out on the street at 17 and I had nowhere to go. So I ended up going to Job Corps and I was started experimenting with alcohol, not substances, but just alcohol. And I found it very um, liberating to be intoxicated. It made me feel um, more sociable, more at ease with other people where I had never been at ease with, mm -hmm. with other people. So that led into probably 10 years of really hard drinking and then after about 10 years, then the substances came into play. And then in 2004, you went into a crime spree. Right. And that sort of dictated the next few decades of your life. I'm just curious if you could share 
what the epiphany was that caused you to sort of look at that as a solution to problems and how you did it. I met a woman while I was in Job Corps, and I had two children with her, two daughters. And for my life to be so unanchored and moving in and out and never really belonging to one place, when I did get with Natalia and we had children, I felt like I finally had a home that couldn't be taken away from me, right? But because of my drinking, she couldn't tolerate it. She's a Russian Orthodox. She grew up in Nikolaev's village up in Alaska. Her father is an alcoholic. What she saw in me was what she saw in her father. Did not want to deal with it. And um, I think she's probably an angel for dealing with it as long as she did. But she left me. And that was like the, the final straw for me. It was like the last rejection, the last, I don't want, you know, it started with my mother not wanting me and then my adoptive parents. So for me, that was like, that was the beginning of homelessness for me. And that was in 96. And I was homeless for about three years. So after about three years of being homeless, I committed a robbery at Midland Gardens grocery store in Everett on 4th Avenue. I used a, a BB gun that looked like a 45. My intent was to get money to either pay for my fishing license, my commercial fishing license to get my gear, or to get caught and go to prison. And in my estimation, prison would be a place where I could go to school. I would have a roof over my head. I would have some structure. And I made the conscious decision to to rob this place. And if I got caught, well, devil may care. Who cares? But I did get caught right away. I did go to prison for a 32-month sentence. And I did, I think, about 28 months on that. Going to prison, I was scared to death. I... Uh, <laughs> I imagined the movie American Me or um, Blood In, Blood Out, you know, a horror story of movies where, but it wasn't like that. I got to the penitentiary and actually my first experience in the penitentiary, you go to what's called the duck, the duck line or yeah, the duck line. It's in seven unit and that's where you go and until you get your housing in eight wing or uh, six wing. And so we went to main line. That's what they call the chow hall is main line. And we go in there, I'm last in line and just kind of absorbing it all, you know, and it's a cafeteria where everybody's sitting down at their tables and I'm absorbing everything and everyone's having their conversations and it's just hyper awareness, you know, and I get through the line, I'm getting my meal, my tray, and then all of a sudden someone bumps me from behind and I look behind me and there's all these brown faces, you know, black men, and they are up in arms. And then I'm like, what's going on? So I put my back to the wall and I look on the other side of the chowl and then it's all these white people are standing up and they're yelling racial epithets back and forth to each other. And I thought, oh, this is it. <laughs> this is how I'm going to die. Right. And I'm in the middle of it and I have nothing to do with any of it. But, um, they call it the goon squad. They come rushing in with their with their gear and stuff. And there was a man on the catwalk, an officer, and he racked his shotgun, the riot gun. Everybody sit down, sit down, calm down. So that was my first night at the Washington State Penitentiary. But after that, it was really mellow. There was no trouble. I didn't fit in anywhere. I didn't fit anybody's mold for uh, prison politics. You know, I wasn't a white supremacist. I wasn't any kind of gang member, you know. Um, I fell in with the Native Americans and I just had a really structured, peaceful time there. You know, I had food every day. I had a place to live. I didn't mind being caged up because it, it was actually comforting in a way. It 
So been to prison three different times. Each time I was incarcerated for robbery because that was the quickest way I knew how to get money to feed my drug addiction. I became addicted to methamphetamine and crack cocaine. Okay. And uh, my life spiraled out of control in 2005, I believe it was. I got out July 1st, 2005 for my second incarceration. No support system in place. Uh, I went to my community custody supervisor. I asked her if I could get housing. She said no because I'm a violent offender. You know, the nomenclature of violent offender is misleading because and I never actually physically hurt anybody, and I understand that pointing a gun at someone is, is is an act of violence, right? But I didn't understand it at the time. But she said there was no housing for me and there was no services for me um, that I could go to the Ever Gospel Mission and be there. And she said that she was aware I had a substance use disorder and that as long as I was honest with her, that she would not violate me uh, up to six times before she put me in what's called the VERT program. And that was basically a green light to do whatever I wanted, you know, and not, I wasn't accountable and I didn't, I didn't have support and I wasn't accountable to anybody, which is a dangerous mix for somebody in my situation. So I went off the rails and I started committing robberies. I did uh, two to three robberies every other day. And it's every other day because one day I would be getting high and drinking and then I would run out of money and drugs and then I would go do two to three robberies. I needed about thousand dollars a day to support my habit wow. and uh that was my life for six months i do not to this day understand how i didn't get shot it seems surprisingly easy for yeah. six months to commit robberies right. every other day yeah yeah and, and in fact i actually uh, my second time to prison i committed a robbery i was working at knack nick barge lines i had lost that job i went back there i knew they kept the keys in the truck and this is not to my credit at all because these are really good people and they gave me a job out of work release and I stole the truck and then I committed a robbery and I went to find drugs. The drug dealer that I normally dealt with didn't want me at his apartments because I was drunk. I just, I was driving a stolen ride. And so I went to somewhere else to get drugs and I actually ended up getting robbed and got shot in the head with a 38. I got shot point blank inches from my head. And from what I understand, that's what saved me is because it was so close. It didn't develop the velocity to go in. But that was the only time I've been shot. And I, like I said, I don't know how I didn't get caught. I didn't know, I don't know how I didn't get shot uh, in the six months that I was running amok. It's amazing. I think God works in mysterious ways, really. Where did that take you? For that period, it took me to a lot of different trap houses, which are places where drugs are used. And I developed some relationships with some unsavory people. And the robberies that I was doing, um, I was basically robbing coffee stands, really easy targets, coffee stands, um, little little grocery stores. Sometimes I would rob big grocery stores like Safeway or QFC. Um, the money would just go. You know, I would as soon as I would get it, I would spend it on drugs. And um, I wasn't living a lavish life. It wasn't for you know, gaining a financial status or anything like that. It literally was just, I had nowhere to go. My, in my mind, my life was over. I had given up. And I, I think in a way that I wanted to die, you know, and I felt like I'm going to, if I'm going to die and I don't have anywhere to go, then I'm going to have as much, and I'm putting air quotations, fun. Mm -hmm. And it was not fun. It was a nightmare. It was a, it was a horrible existence. And then you eventually got caught. I got caught. Yeah. We robbed the QFC in Mukilteo. Um, a person that I had 
was a friend of my other driver and I won't say his name, but he drove. And so we would go and do a robbery at a, say a seven 11, and then we would go rob circle K. And then if I didn't have a thousand dollars, we would go up to South Everett or North Everett, wherever we were. And while all the police are marching their way to the first two robberies, we would rob another place. So he was also a drug addict and we were in a kind of a symbiotic relationship as far as the drugs go. And, uh, his friend was a fisherman too. And he came over one time and he had a, a half a bird, which is a half a kilo of cocaine. And uh, he was going to cook it up, make crack out of it. And he was a smoker. He was a drug user. And in his his mind, he was going to take that quantity of drugs and sell it while getting high and then make money. Well, I told my other friend, I said, I'm going to rob your friend. I'm going to take his stuff, right? Yeah, you can't do that. We went and all went to Woodway to you know, we didn't go to school together. They were older than I was, but we all grew up in Woodway and places of privilege, right? But anyway, he says, you know, you can't rob my friend, you know, he's a really good guy. So that's how I met this other person. And the night that I had got caught, I had already committed four robberies. I think I had like $1,200. I had no business committing any more robberies. I had enough money to buy, you know, drugs for myself. So we went out to his place. He had a nice house in Camado Island. We met this guy. I told my other person, I won't call him a friend because we weren't friends, but a uh, relationship through convenience, I guess. Uh, I told him, don't ever tell anybody what we're doing. Just if people want to know where we get money and drugs, just to, we're drug dealers. We, we deal drugs. It's nobody's business what we do. As soon as you tell somebody we're going to get caught, someone's going to tell on us. That's how it works. So we're going to go out to Camino Island to visit this person and his girlfriend. And he says to me, he says, well, Hoover, how would you like to do something, you know, where you wouldn't have to keep doing what you do to make money? And he had this Hollywood version of a, of a robbery that we were going to rob a drug dealer in Tacoma. It was this long, drawn-out thing. And in my mind, I'm looking at him like, this guy's an idiot. This guy doesn't, he has no idea what he's talking about. But... um I, start, I was drinking that night, and so I wanted to impress him for whatever reason. And I said, well, I want to show you what a robbery looks like. So we got in the car, his car with his girlfriend, and I went and robbed two stores in uh, Smoky Point. I think it's a 7-Eleven and a Circle K in Smoky Point. And then we drove back to his place, and my other driver had wanted to get with his girlfriend. This is the way things work in this world, you know. So... This other person wanted, he said, well, you want to, you want to smoke crack or you want to make money. And in my mind, I was like, well, I'm not a crackhead. You know, I just use drugs, but you know, so me and him went off and that's how we ended up in Mukilteo at four in the morning at the QFC where there is a sheriff's office half a block away. Uh, <laughs> I walked into the QFC with my hoodie on and I'm, you know, using drugs. So I do not look like a, a good person. The manager happened to be in the parking lot smoking a cigarette, saw me go into the store, decided he was going to kind of keep an eye out. This is from the police records. He thought I was going to be a shoplifter. I went up to the manager's office where some IT guy was working, updating their security. And I thought that was a manager. I pulled a 357 Magnum on him. I told him to come down. We're going to get all the money out of all the, um, the tills. I was aware that they keep like $150 seed cash in each one. I think at that particular location, there was like 20 tills, so I was going to clean up. So we come down, and he's telling me, I don't work here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a contractor. So we get two box boys to come over and to open up the registers. And through nerves or whatever, they had locked out the register. 
Well, the manager is in the parking lot watching me point this huge cannon at his employees and his contract staff. So he gets on the phone with 911. Very quickly, the police arrive as I'm exiting the, the QFC with a cash register that I ripped out because they couldn't open it. So I wasn't going to leave empty handed. My driver was driving away as I was running to the car and uh, I ended up hopping in and we went on about a half hour high speed chase with the police and uh, they ended up catching us around Mount Lake Terrace, I think. And uh, we crashed into one of the police cars and then I exited the vehicle, went off. I said, later, later, bro. I remember saying that to him. There was an AK-47 in the trunk, which I didn't know about. There was a 357 in the car, a 44 Magnum, and a lot of drugs in the car and alcohol. So I exited, and I, I went on the run, and I think I was able to escape for about a half hour, and then the dog tracked me down, and I was in sticker bushes. You know, it's, that's usually where these places take you as sticker bushes. That's where my life really took a change. So I was picked up. I was aware that this was going to be my third strike and that I would never get out of prison. So it was kind of a relief, but also some anxiety, you know, like what is it going to look like for me live the rest of my life in a box, you know. And you were at Walla Walla mm -hmm. State Penitentiary. I, I knew I would go to Walla Walla. I knew I would go to the penitentiary. Yeah. And I already knew what it was like there, you know. So I, for me... Um, still intoxicated with drugs and alcohol going into the the jail they put me in four north which is the hole in snohomish county um i stayed there for about eight months but a remarkable thing happened my father started visiting me and um we developed a really good relationship because there were no more pretenses there was nothing for me to uh, you know, say, oh, I'm all right. Or, you know, I wasn't all right. And I didn't mind telling him and I didn't mind sharing with him the life that I had been living, you know, and he was very supportive. They're very religious. He was very supportive of me. He wanted me to be happy. He just wanted me to know that he loved me and that he had missed me growing up and that he realized he kind of failed me as a father by putting me in all these different group homes. Now at this time they didn't realize, and we never shared with each other what had happened to me. But, um, that was a really um, good experience for me is is getting to know my father as a as a man, a man to man, you know. And we talked about the high road. And he said, you know, you can still have a good life. You can still be happy. You don't have to be miserable. You don't have to go to prison and, and live this horrible life. You can be accountable for what you've done, you know. And he encouraged me to take responsibility for my actions. So I had thought about it. And as I came off of these drugs, I started really – like thinking about all the people that I had robbed, you know, I mean, clerks, girls working at baristas, people who ha are just trying to make a living, you know, and it really affected me deeply. And I became very ashamed and very, I felt a lot of guilt for the people that I had harmed. Um, that was not who I was. I'm, I'm not a violent person. I'm not, I'm not a person that wants to cause harm to other people. Um, but drugs and everything kind of took me down a different path. So were you getting treatment for addiction at that point? No, no. Okay, so you still were kind of suffering from the. Addiction. I was still suffering yeah. um, from crack, from addiction, from crack withdrawal. It was horrible. I will tell you, it was horrible. But um, I made the, the decision that I was going to take responsibility for what I did. The three strikes law is called the Persistent Offender Accountability Act, right? And 
in that law, it says that people who commit a third strike so exacerbate the, the prior two that it warrants them to go to prison for life without because they are, and this is what the law says, they are the worst of the worst. And I, I thought about that and I thought, I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person at my core. You know, I've done bad things. I've made mistakes and I, I thank God I never physically hurt anybody, but I do know that I hurt people um, psychologically by committing robberies and I harmed our community too, because I mean, I, there was an article in the paper, in the Herald that showed a bunch of red dots all up and down 99 for um, the the rise in crime for the period that I was out. They didn't attribute it to me, but, and I knew that I had done the majority of those robberies. So I harmed our community and I wanted to kind of um, make an amends. So I, against my attorney's um, wishes, I pled guilty and I went, and I said, you know, I did, I did this. I don't know why my life has become a nightmare. I don't know where I fit into to society. I can't, I can't get a house. I don't have a family. I'm, I'm lost to the world. And uh, Judge Thomas Wynn, he had sentenced me, and he said, "This is a waste of what could have been a very productive life because all he sees in the courtroom are my affluent sisters and my father, who was a doctor, who spoke. So in his estimation." I had privilege and I had, Mm. you know, you could have had a very productive life, but he didn't know all the other stuff, you know. But I told the the judge, I said, it it still can be a productive life. I can go to prison and I can, I can learn to live within the rules, you know, and I can have a productive life. And I, and I hope that by pleading guilty today kind of sets me on that path, you know, and they wish you luck and everything. And that was done, done. And then I go to prison. And I was good to my word. I did not engage in any of the shenanigans. I didn't. I didn't engage in drugs or um, hooch. So I didn't engage in any of that stuff. I tried to get into school. I tried to do as much programming as I could. Now, programming or like self self help change programs and stuff. I didn't qualify for school because I had life without, and they don't want people who have life without taking somebody else's seat that could benefit from it because you're not getting out. So why do you need a degree for? Um, and that was my first taste of advocacy. So I wrote the Sunshine Lady Foundation, which is Doris Buffett's foundation. And I said that even though I have life without, my situation could change in the future. We don't know what the future holds for any of us. The law could change, or maybe I could be a, a mentor to somebody else coming in who should go to school. If this guy who has life without is trying to better his situation in, in his life by going to school, Maybe I should go to school. And that was kind of the argument I made on paper. Well, she wrote back and she told the prison that um, those funds are for everybody, that they can't discriminate whether you have life without or not. So it was a win. It was a hollow victory because the, the prison said, oh, all right, all right. we'll let you go to school if there's room. But then they fill up the classrooms with people who didn't even want to be in the classrooms. And then they would never put me in. But it was my first taste of advocacy. You know, one of the themes here today is sort of being anchored or unanchored. And what I'm really hearing from you is that by being in prison, that you were actually right, that even though it was not necessarily you or anyone would wish to be in prison, that it did create a framework for you to anchor yourself with people, even people outside of the prison system. Yeah. The structure that I got from prison and the the benefit that I had from being part of the Native American circle allowed me to meet other people like Johanna Reed, she's an attorney in Seattle, and doing advocacy work, I was able to meet Gabe Galanda. I was able to um, meet Winona Stevens, Minty Longer, these people who are outside of the prison, but they support 
they support people who are trying to do the right thing while they're in prison. You know, right. so it was it was like it was like this. Um, I don't know. You cobbled together an anchor for me wow. in prison, right? And then getting out, I still have those relationships. So then let's just talk about clemency and kind of how that process worked for you. So clemency is an extraordinary act of grace, right? Nobody deserves grace. Nobody, you can't earn grace. It's given to you. But while I was in prison, not committing any you know disturbances and going to school and trying to better my life and dealing with that childhood sexual abuse, like I took it upon myself to examine that and how that caused destruction inside of my, my soul, basically. Um, after I got my settlement, I hired Maureen Devlin with David B. Zuckerman's law firm. And she kind of framed it as, you know, this person had been through hell during their childhood. That does not excuse the crimes that he committed, but it certainly explains why he went down this, this path, right? So we went and took our petition to the governor, well, the clemency board, 2013, um, I got a unanimous decision to give me clemency, to recommend clemency to the governor. And then Maureen told me, she said, it'd probably be a year or two years before you even hear from the governor. And then I think it was like three months later, I got mail call. I was called down. I got my mail. I opened it up. It was from the governor's office. I opened it up and there's my my clemency papers signed by the governor. I literally was, I went from one second of being buried under the prison to now I have this paper in my hand that says I'm going to be free someday, you know? And it was amazing. It was, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's to me, it seems like a miracle. How many years had you been incarcerated? Well, 16 total. Yeah. It seems like when you were in prison, things were better in the sense that you had that framework and you developed these relationships and then now you're going to be back out again. How did you feel? It scared the daylights out of me. Yeah. It, It scared me because I've never operated in the world as a normal human being. I've never operated as a whole human being, you know? So I was scared, like, where would I fit into the world? And that's kind of how I developed Stonebridge Reentry Services because I started thinking about, I, well, I examined, like, what kind of things would have benefited me when I, was, when I was out there going through my mess? And then that's how my wife and I kind of put Stonebridge Reentry Services together. Then how did your wife sort of show up into this picture, <laughs> if um, I could ask? Yeah. Uh, so a friend – now these these prison stories are very complicated and tangled up, right? So she had a friend that was uh, a lifelong friend who they developed a relationship with, and he was in and out of prison. And he had a friend who I had, was friends with, and they had broken up, and he told me that he knew a girl who was going to law school, and he thought I would be – really, you know, get along with her. And I told Scott, his name is Scott Freeberg. I told him, I said, nah, man, I, what do I need with a girl? That's a headache. I don't, I've got life without, it doesn't make sense to me. So about a year goes by and then I, for whatever reason, I wrote her and we developed a relationship, a friendship, not a romantic relationship, but a friendship. And her story is, is a lot like mine. And she excavated herself from her drug addiction and her problems and got her master's degree. And I, I felt like those are the kind of people, if you have this this magic, this medicine, and I want part of that, you know. And that's how the friendship really developed. And once I got clemency, then it was, I was getting out. So I made my move on her at a powwow, and I proposed to her, and um, she accepted. Yeah. 
you brought something to share with us. So yeah. what do you have? So this is my sacred items box from 2007. They don't give these anymore. It's just a paper box. And it says uh, in black, black bold letters, sacred items. And in it, I have a beaded purse that uh, a friend, a Colville friend of mine made. And he gifted this to my wife. Well, he actually gifted it to both of us. Now, his father was gay and his father died of AIDS, right? And as he was beating this, we were cellies for about three years. He was beating this and he was telling me like why this was so important to him. Mm -hmm. So on the back of it, it's him and his father as Buffalo, right? And then the son, which, which um, symbolizes life. And then on the front of it was his father's medicine, which is an elk walking along a rainbow road, which signifies his homosexuality. Right, which he had to hide from his family, and then you open it up, and it has a horse, a, a man on a horse, which is represents freedom to him, and then along along the, the the side of it are Native Americans, which he saw as his culture. He's an Arrow Lakes, he's Colville from Arrow Lakes, and then the last thing I think that he put on was a coastal moon, which was a kind of like a, an ode to me because I'm always painting in the cell, and so. This meant a lot to him, right? It's beautiful. And it took him about three years to bead, and uh, I wanted to purchase it from him because I thought, that's a museum-quality piece. These are all in 15s. Um, and, no, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And then after um, I got out, my wife didn't tell me, but he had mailed it to my wife with no charge and said, this is your wedding gift. So that's become part of my sacred items, something that is very meaningful to me from prison. And here I have a juvenile golden eagle feather that was gifted to me. A bandana that I wear in Sweat Lodge, which has more feathers in it. And then just a collection of different medicines, sage, osha root, which is called cuscus in your wife's language. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, this is my meaningful medicine thing box. that I brought. Beautiful. Yeah, my Thank medicine you. box. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And so now you live in a Soten mm -hmm. and you, you and your wife work together. Right. Uh, so tell us about the 5013C that you founded and kind of what your goals are. Okay. So my wife, she she started a business called New Beginnings Counseling and Support Agency. So she does uh, psychotherapy and substance use disorder treatment for juveniles. She has the federal probation and parole contract. She also has the IDCJ, which is Idaho Department of Corrections Juvenile Contract. So that's the business that we own. And I do the filing and the billing, answer phones, you know. So that's what supports us. And then we also have Stonebridge Reentry Services, which is a nonprofit. We want to provide transitional housing for men that are getting out of prison. But we don't want to be a flop house for guys that just need a place to get out of prison so that they can get into the community. We want to offer services within our house, which are substance use disorder, family reunification. We want to do... Um, community outreach services, which is where if you've, for myself, committing crimes and being on drugs, you're removed from the community. You're removed from your place of origin for, from where you're at, right? And so you're estranged from community. You don't feel like you belong. So it's easy to commit crimes on a community that you don't belong to. Who cares, right? So we want these men to feel like they're part of their community. We want them to do community outreach, which is collecting dented cans from grocery stores, old bread, 
and then taking it to food pantries. Um, we want to do family reunification. So the bridges that were burned through drug use and stealing from family members and whatnot, that they can kind of reconnect to their family. And then they'd be in the house for three months and then they would get employment and then they would get permanent housing also. Uh, connection to social services, medical services, all that. I asked our guests to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest, like one place that if it were to disappear, it would be a hardship for you. Is there a place that comes to mind? Hmm. Probably Dusty Lake out in Quincy. It's a place that I went to when I was um, in foster care with a certain person. And we would do horseback riding and fishing in that lake. And it's just a, it's a desert setting, but it's just beautiful. And there's a lot of wildlife around there. And it's just, it's just a really good, happy memory for me. Nice. Dusty Lake. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, I don't know the history of it, but I, I just want to share a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but Herbert Nichols, age 12, he shot and killed a Soton County Sheriff, John Warmel, on the 5th of August, 1931, in what the locals term the crime of the century. He broke into the People's Supply Store in Asotin, intending to steal candy and cigarettes, and within minutes, Sheriff Warmel knocked on the door at the front of the store. Come out, I am the sheriff of Asotin County. Wormel is a 72-year-old former state representative, a four-term sheriff, and a descendant of one of the settlers. So receiving no response, Wormel enters the store, and with him is the store owner, Peter Klaus. They search the store, and they find Nichols hiding in the vinegar barrel. Panicked, he jumped to his feet, firing at Wormel, who was standing less than five feet away. It struck him immediately and killed him. And then it caught national attention. In 1931, he went on trial The courthouse was full, and the Methodist church down the street sold fried chicken to the crowd. His grandmother, testifying on his behalf, heard his case when she said that she believed him to be possessed by a demon. Before the murder, Herbert was living with his paternal grandmother, Mary Addington, who was a strict disciplinarian and by some accounts routinely beat him. And so he ran away, carrying a 32 Ivor Johnson pistol that he had stolen. And then in 1931, the case went to the jury. He received life in prison at the state penitentiary in Walla Walla, he flourished in the structured prison environment. He became an avid reader and a gifted, was gifted in math, received homework weekly from the Walla Walla School District. He got a high school diploma, took correspondence courses at the Washington State College. And in 41, he was pardoned by Governor Clarence Martin, and he went on to live a very successful crime-free life until 1983. So I just... That was an amazing transaction of, <laughs> <laughs> of my story. <laughs> And I, ended up, yeah, and I ended up in a Soton. That's, that's very... <laughs> I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah, just, I appreciate it. I didn't know your story. I've learned a lot more today, and I really appreciate your generosity and sharing so much. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Michael, again for being our guest. And to learn more about Michael, you can visit stonebridgereentryservices.com or just contact me. We'll get you in touch. Join us next time when our guest will be Timothy Dooley. Timothy is a longtime bartender and a regular of the Blue Moon Tavern. The Blue Moon is located on the west edge of the University District in Seattle. It opened in 1934, four months after the repeal of Prohibition, and it has been visited by many countercultural icons over the years, including poets Theodore Rothke and Richard Hugo, Dylan Thomas, Ken Kesey, and even Allen Ginsberg. It's one of the few surviving blue-collar landmarks in Seattle. Thank you for joining us today. Daniel Gunther is our sound engineer, photography by Brandon Williams, and production support from Mary Barbour. We're recorded at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's U District, just down the street from the Blue Moon Tavern. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review. 
or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you.